Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Spectrum. This award season, Spectrum and IndieWire invite you to spend time with some of the year's biggest nominees in our Contender Conversations series. Each week, we're adding exclusive new videos featuring filmmakers and stars behind some of the year's most acclaimed titles. This week, hear from Oscar winner Barry Jenkins on the making of Moonlight. And listen to Kenneth Lonergan talk about his Oscar-winning screenplay for Manchester by the Sea. These interviews, and many more, are available right now. Just look for the award season spotlight on IndieWire.com. And of course, don't forget to watch the movies. Both Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea are ready to watch right from home right now with Spectrum On Demand. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large. And supposedly this is real life after the 2017 Oscars, although given the way things went down, and I'm not totally sure what's real anymore. I mean, this was uh, quite, quite a year to challenge expectations, although the amazing thing about it is that we felt like it was so predictable until that amazing ending. And the, the real summary of the night came up, I think, when we were driving back in an Uber some, sometime around close to 2 a.m., and, and our Uber driver said, you know, it's just so fascinating to hear you guys talk about this because the whole world was talking about this. I mean, it really, we've never seen anything like what happened with that Best Picture snafu. It, it turned out to be great TV, but if you were in the room, it turned out to be this just amazing explosion of chaos. And from a journalistic perspective, you know, I found it energizing. I don't know what it was like for you. You were backstage. Well, what was the pandemonium like from, uh, with, with all the press back there? Oh, it was definitely a what the fuck kind of uh, moment, and everybody was just what. And so we were sitting with the Variety people and uh, Kate Urbland and I, and and uh, the Deadline people, and we were, you know, um, the the people who had just won were coming backstage. So Emma Stone is, comes backstage and says, you know, I still have my card and, you know, I really don't want to start anything. But, you know, so it turned out there were two sets of cards and I'm sure everybody's read read all this. But the then, you know, the whole world has read this. The Barry world Jenkins. like a Reddit forum. Just it was incredible. Detail. You know, but but you know, Viola Davis came back and she was gave a great interview and and uh, I do recommend a story that the New Yorker did about the sort of backstage experience, um, which which was really fun to read. Um, and then um, and then Barry Jenkins came back and you know explained how he felt and and the then we I went over to the governor's ball and saw. Barry Jenkins and his producer Adele Romansky uh, and um, Jeremy Kleiner uh, sort of sequentially go up to the La La Land producer Jordan Horowitz, who had been so 
who seemed to be the only person with a with the presence of mind to sort of take charge of the situation yes. as a producer might and just say this is what happened well, and it was be very gracious about moral it. Moral quandary and and a window into how different people operate under pressure, right? I mean, I, I would I'm, I'm not going to to judge the reaction of different producers in that moment be, in, in, in any kind of direct way because it's really hard to understand what it must be like in that particular moment. It's so confusing and it just raises so many questions about blame, really, right? Because it was sort of this this snowballing effect, right? You had this guy backstage from Price Waterhouse Cooper, who we know now is distracted on his phone tweeting photos of celebrities and stuff. Emma Stone, who had just yeah. won. Yeah. So There's a he, photo of him backstage. There's a photo of him holding a friggin' phone. And he's got a phone, and he's got <laughs> the envelopes in his hand, and you just it's like a recipe for disaster. His eye was not on the ball. Now, that guy is never going to work at the Oscars again, and neither is his compadre who was also blamed for the same for what what they didn't do was they didn't act quickly and decisively they didn't run out there there they had memorized or were supposed to have memorized the winners so that they would know if something wrong happened they must and they were known. frozen yeah, apparently they, they just had never experienced something like that so that was the first the first mistake then you have this thing with warren where he looks at this thing and he's confused and he hands it to Faye Dunaway. So that's an interesting question there where, you know, you have to examine whether or not that was the right maneuver as opposed to saying, hey, I think there's something wrong with this. Or even saying, hey, Faye, I think there's something wrong with this. He just gives it to her and she sees the movie title and obviously she thought he was being cute. But then it's on Faye Dunaway because she said La La Land. Right. right. So, exactly. Warren, you, you were the one who overheard them talking at the governor's ball. Yeah, and, and, well, this was hilarious because I, I was at the governor's ball just sort of hanging around, talking to all these people, talking to awards uh, influencers or whisperers like Peggy Siegel, who are completely baffled, one, by what happened there, but also just by Moonlight winning, which they didn't expect. And then all of a sudden I'm talking to uh, IMDb's Colin Needham, and I, I'm like, you got to wonder what's going on in Warren Beatty's head. And he says, why don't you ask him? He's right behind you. And I turn around, and there's Warren Beatty has literally just walked in, and uh, and I'm not sure exactly what to do in this situation because you know the whole world just watched this screw up. And then I see our our buddy Baz Bamigoye coming up to him, and then uh, Peggy Siegel making a beeline, and I'm like, well, I guess I may as well just make myself a part of this. And I witnessed this fascinating exchange where he and Faye Dunaway basically work out that she has to answer questions about this because she read the movie title. But ultimately, he released a statement later saying that Cheryl Boone Isaacs is the one who needs to answer questions, and he's putting all the blame on the Academy. So there's this kind of hilarious and, and really bizarre kind of passing with a baton going on when, you know, really it does come down to that one guy screwing up, but there were a series of different errors. Well, let's made. put it this way, that, that, yeah, series, it was a perfect storm situation where, where three producers in the course of two minutes were able to start their, you know, give their acceptance speeches, or at least the third one started one, knowing that he had already lost. Yeah, that, that was, was hilarious. Poor Fred Berger. Who's so really he was not the guy. one to admire. No, Jordan Horowitz was the one to admire, but also the next day, 
I mean, I, I, I did see Damien Chazelle at the end of the night looking very shell-shocked and, and, and sad, um, you know, leaving the, the La La Land party at, at, the, at the Soho house. Um, and, and he said, all I want to do is sleep. It was crazy. But he got up early the next morning to do an interview with Barry Jenkins together. And the fact is the two guys became really good friends on the campaign trail. This happens every year where there's a certain amount of bonding that goes on. And, um, and you know, in the end, it, we what we finally needed to do is look at what, what the real story was, which was that a $1.5 million movie, you know, the lowest budgeted movie ever in the history of the Oscars, because we did the math with mm-hmm. adjusted budgets and everything. Um, no movie comes close to being this inexpensive. It's crazy. And, and uh, and and it, and a you know a gay coming of age story, uh, African American cast entirely shot in Miami, you know everything about this movie. I mean, it's ten years since Brokeback Mountain didn't win, um, so we have made progress. We have the the Academy membership changes, even if they move the needle just a few fractional uh, points. Um, are making a difference, I think, and and it's just uh, heartening that Moonlight won. I mean, it's it's something we wanted, and and clearly, it was interesting in the room. Uh, I felt this sort of lack of enthusiasm for La La Land when it was announced, but when Moonlight was the winner, there was a lot of enthusiasm, and and I think I clearly this was a movie that people felt they could root for. The cast was so lovely. People uh, adored Mahershala Ali. Uh, over the course of months and months and months, these these people in the Academy got to meet them. Right. I and, think that's, and, that's a key point, is that the people in the Academy got to meet them. Because if you listen to Jimmy Kimmel explain what happened on his show the next night, you know, he says that he was trying, trying to kind of be funny and figure out a way to save the situation, and then Denzel in the front row is saying like something like, let Barry speak, you know, and so there was this kind of broader awareness of these people, which I think I had a hard time even seeing because I'm aware of these filmmakers and this particular community of people who make movies on a totally different level and the way in which it's largely divorced from the larger industry makes it hard to fathom more people becoming aware of this kind of movie that was made on this scale that doesn't have a huge amount of star power or even a traditional narrative. But it wouldn't know. have done well if the actors hadn't been supportive of it. And it does so seem like that, you really do it. have that. I mean, Naomi Harris, obviously very well respected, got a nomination. You know, Mahershala Ali won. Um, I mean, they, they, they clearly, and they landed a SAG ensemble nomination. Now, the other little tidbit here is that among the, you know, so-called predictive guilds, La La Land won the PGA, and um, this one uh, got a SAG nomination, but hidden uh, ensemble nomination, but hidden figures won that and didn't win any any Oscars. So these 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 are these guilds are less predictive. The, there has been a lot of discussion of of the increasing number of splits when you have um, in the years that we've had preferential balloting picture director. So that, so that you have a different director and a different picture. And that, that was less frequent in the old days. It was more like once a decade that that would happen. Um, so it's, a, it's been happening more and more frequently. And, and my, the pattern I've discerned, at least, is that the movie with more scale and scope gets the director one. If you look at Ang Lee, if you look at uh, Alfonso Cuaron, if you look at um, 
Inuritu's Revenant. Sure. But sure. Uh, the movie that sh is the movie that shows how the Academy wants to present itself to the world that reflects their values and their sense of the current zeitgeist. This year, the movie that fulfilled that on an artistic level and on a message level was Moonlight. But there's one other thing you're, you're not talking about, and it's something that I think you'd hinted at earlier, even though, like most people, you guessed that La La Land would take picture there were a lot of people who were not over the moon about this movie in the way, it's a funny choice of words, but in the way that they were over the moon about Moonlight. I mean, Moonlight was not just driven by great reviews, but there was just this kind of uniformity of praise to it in a larger sense. It was a unique movie, too, in all the ways that we've described, but also in this very bizarre structure that it had, where these three different actors playing different, the same character at, th at three different ages, somehow when you get to you know, the well-muscled drug dealer at the end that you would, you know, look at differently, perhaps, if you saw him first off on the street, you know, anyone would, then you see who he is and where he came from and what his inside looks like, and it's very moving. I also think the Academy may have been, I mean, I don't know if it's skewed younger or something, but may have been more receptive to uh, a smaller movie that is made in an unorthodox way because of conversations about those possibilities in recent history. I mean, remember the boyhood versus Birdman thing, right? Birdman was not a traditional movie, but it was a bigger movie, and, and boyhood was this experimental narrative shot over 12 years. I think there, there was some something fascinating about the way that that broke down where that movie ended up barely winning anything, just supporting actress, whereas this time even though La La Land was like poised to make history and all that kind of stuff, people were actually much more excited about the, the, the newness of Moonlight, the, the, the fact that they'd never seen that movie quite like that before. You know. I agree. So I if you totally set aside agree. the issues, it's also about just a great movie. And so yeah, but La La you know, Land was a great movie, too. It just didn't hit the zeitgeist in the right way. It was too white. It was too frivolous. They even made a joke know. about the white, the white people stealing jazz while they were Yeah, explaining that, that line that kept coming back, that Ryan Gosling was explaining jazz to black people, but then, you know, but that then kind Kimmel of thing. But also made that terrible hand job joke, the happy ending joke, early on, and when people didn't laugh, he was like, you didn't see it, did you? Well, they're going to see it now. I mean, they've It's on 1,500 screens this weekend, and it's going to do, uh, I hope, very, very well. It also has been, they were smart, they put it out on, on uh, multi-platforms ahead of the Oscars while the ballots were open so that people could see it then as well. And it's so, number one on iTunes, above yep. all kinds of other stuff, including Moana. I mean, it's just... Again, is this real life? I mean, it just it does it's it's so strange to see something made on that scale and it makes you wonder, you know, what is the conversation that's happening at distribution companies and production companies and at studios all over the country right now? I mean, how is well, this going to change? Well, I would say that that the, you know, I I I give a lot of credit to Plan B, by the way, who, you know, this is their fourth Oscar contender in a row. They did the big short last year, Selma, the year before that. They did um, the Oscar-winning 12 Years a Slave, and then Dee Dee Gardner was involved in Tree of Life, which was an Oscar contender. So, you know, the, these people are, you know, rivaling Scott Rudin, who has seven Best Picture nominations and one win for No Country for Old Men. So, uh, but what they had the smarts to do was to go to A24, 
and they just recognized that this distributor was the one that was capable of taking it to the finish line, even if it was that small, and, and they did. Well, A24 fully financed the movie, and that's the first time they've done that, which means that for this company, which has slowly been building up its profile, they are now on a totally different kind of level. I mean, everybody's going to want to work with them right now. Everybody's going to try to make their movie sound like an A24 movie. It was already heading that way. I they may have paid for it, but you, you do have to give Plan B credit for developing it. Sure, no, I, 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 and I do. I think Plan B is doing fascinating stuff. I also think my sense is that they're nice guys, that they're not the Scott Rudens and Harvey Weinsteins of the world in the sense that they're not, they're, they're enabling. So you what look they at all have this- is they have taste and, and they, have, they have a way of working with filmmakers and um, creative talent where they ask them what they're interested in and, and what they want to do and they encourage them in a kind of organic way without imposing things upon them. It's, it's, it's a very interesting company and the, you know, you just have to give them a lot of credit for this kind of consistent success. Yeah, and they're just going to keep being that kind of company, at least for the foreseeable future. I mean, they have something like Lost City of Z. I don't know exactly how well that's going to do commercially, but it's a, it's a cool movie that James Gray did on a scale you wouldn't expect a traditional studio would be able to give him money to do. So. And they worked on the OA, which was the uh, Zal Bagmongblage and Britt Marling collaboration, which I loved, uh, a TV series on, on Netflix. Yeah, and they've got Felix Van Grunigan's new film. He was nominated for Broken Circle Breakdown a few years ago. So those guys, are they're going to stay in the conversation, and, and it'll be a big year for A24, too. They have movies like the Safdie Brothers film with Robert Pattinson and a new John Cam- Cameron Mitchell movie, things that are probably going to be all over Cannes this year. So I- I'm expecting that brand only to get stronger, and you know we'll-, we'll see how it goes from here. But I'm also wondering about you know where does this leave the studios? Because we got somebody like Paramount and Arrival, which in which a different they year... Up. They picked up for $20 million, so they didn't even make that movie. Right. So where were the studios this year? And I mean, the studios were telling the filmmakers matter. behind Arrival that they wanted, you know, do you, does it have to have a woman? Right? That right. kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I think I think you see, uh, as you know, I mean, Paramount and Warner's and 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 uh, Sony especially are in a great deal of disarray, and there's all these questions about who they're going to bring in as a new studio chief over at at Paramount, and and you know, uh, Scott Stuber, who used to be a uh, used to run Universal under Stacy Snyder with uh, Mary Parent, who's who had a long time studio deal at Universal, he's he's actually uh, up for the head of production job at Netflix. And I find, you know, it really interesting to conceive of the idea that he would actually prefer, I mean, he hasn't, we haven't found out where, which way he's going to go, but he's supposedly up for the Paramount, he has at least met with the Paramount people as well. And it, it's very interesting to think that he would rather work at Netflix, Which, right? by the way, won their, their Oscar uh, last weekend for, for White Helmets, for a short film. Yeah. Amazon won a couple of Oscars. For so they, they, These guys have uh, tasted blood. They're in, exactly. <laughs> they're in the running for the big stuff and will continue to, to, do, to do so. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see because people were already aware of these brands, but now they can actually sort of legitimize what they've been trying to to build up to. I mean, going back to the Kimmel thing, Kimmel made a Jeff Bezos joke about Amazon, and that, that in some ways 
brought that uh, stance uh, on you know, their presence in the distribution landscape to a larger audience. And, let's uh, put it another way, though. The, the Amazon um, model is a theatrical model, and they have old-fashioned theatrical folks like Bob Burney and Ted Hope and, right. and you know, running their movie side, and they're doing it with distribution partners. And so they established with word of mouth and critics, critics and film festival play yeah. and yeah. being in theaters for months at a time. They did the, the same kind of spade work that, that uh, A24 did to keep you know, Moonlight and its word of mouth building over that entire period of time. And and that's what Netflix does not do and will not do. And so if they say they're going to mount a major Oscar campaign for Dee Reese's uh, Sundance pickup that they did for $12.5 million, the highest paid uh, pickup there, um, Mudbound, I don't think they can on their model. And, well, and they, that's they also don't have the patience for some of the... the the nuances involved in doing that because they know they can get this big audience on their platform and their business model isn't really doesn't really benefit anything from that. They're already getting the street cred. They, they won some Oscars, so it's going to be something different, but they're going to keep trying. I think they think that they can do what they did with Netflix, with the docs on that, because right. they have four docs that have been nominated yeah. now, and this is their first win. So I think they think they can do it, but um, I'm going to be very interested <laughs> to watch that unfold. By, by which you mean skeptical until proven otherwise but, yeah uh, but yeah i mean the money i don't underestimate them by the way but i i don't think that they think that theatrical distribution and marketing is necessary to get an oscar and i do yeah there was a, one of the upsets not for that, documentaries there, there was for up, everybody else there was an upset last last um uh, last sunday in the best editing category when hacksaw ridge won um, a lot of people didn't expect that to happen, and talking to folks afterwards, it did seem like a, a lot of people saw that as the first indication that maybe something different happened with the voting this year. But um, but I did think that was notable that you know that was that was the award that Hacksaw Ridge got. That was a more kind of traditional movie that did end up getting something, as did Colleen Atwood for Fantastic Beasts and so forth. So there was well, a little bit of that. I understand that you, Mr. Eric Cohn, in spite of my status as an Oscar predictor, you won the office pool. I did? This is the uh -huh. first time I'm hearing this. Yes, well, you I'd did. like to thank the Academy for giving me... Uh, you apparently <laughs> did well in those categories, yeah. the ones that you're just mentioning. You picked, the, you picked rightly. I, I, I filed mine early and changed my mind on a couple of categories that went my way in the end. So I should have filed a later, a later ballot because I, did I went actually, back to Casey well, Affleck. I will also point out that on last week's Screen Talk, I did also pick Moonlight for Best Picture in a, in a kind of coy way acknowledging that I was probably wrong but didn't have skin in the game like you did so I shouldn't have included that disclaimer but I, I don't think uh, I don't think I put it in the office pool because I, I, at, the, at the end of the day I just I didn't have the, the confidence that, that on some level I felt like there was this possibility here but, it, but it's, you just hear la la and la la and la la and, and uh, that, that just became a deafening thing where, where, to the point where even Moonlight folks didn't expect it. I mean, you remember we were talking to Barry Jenkins. We were. He week. was saying, what's our chances? Yeah, yeah. And I was, uh, I'm telling him, you're going to win two. Yeah, well, we were just saying screenplay. It turned out he won three. Yeah, pretty wild. Although, technically, he did not win that Best Picture Oscar. That goes to his producers. Right. But he got that moment in front of the mic. I mean, it's, it's wild to, to think about it, but, I mean, this is a very public figure now. 
You know, he's got a lot of opportunities here, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see what he does next and how he leverages the platform he now has to help other kinds of filmmakers, which I have no doubt he's going to do, but, it, but it's, it's going to have an effect on a lot of different people. And um, it's just going to be an interesting year to talk about the reverberations of all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, there's actual movies opening this week, so we don't just have to talk about Oscars. Everybody's Oscared out anyway. We talked a little bit about Logan last week, but I think it's worth coming back to because this is a really cool movie from a studio standpoint. It's not a traditional superhero movie in, in any respect, and yet... It looks like it's going to do really well, and I think people are going to be satisfied with it. So that's, I think this is a positive thing. It's not a perfect movie, but it's, it's much more muted and well-paced than uh, I think people may realize going into it. Well, basically what they did was to, was to take uh, Logan and put it back on a, on a human scale. And I was just working on a story, as I said, where I'm sort of laying out all the rules that they broke um, you know, it's, it's, it's a comic book movie, but it's R-rated. They didn't put Wolverine in the title. Um, you know, they, they lowered the budget to a reasonable level so they could take some chances. Um, they, they hired an Hispanic, uh, girl who's 11 years old as one of the leads, you know, and there's all these different ways just by upping the violence and, and, uh, changing, but not making it all about pixelated end-of-the-world destruction, but keeping the characters, you know, reducing the number of characters so that there's a small triangle, really, of people that you're really caring about. Uh, Patrick Stewart as, as the father figure, Charles Xavier, and and then uh, Hugh Jackman and, and this girl. Uh, it was really good. I loved this I, movie. I love the opening sequence because it's... He's, like, lying on his back, and then he, he gets into this gruesome battle. And you know there's CGI here. I mean, look, you have to have CGI with what he there does is. with his claws. But it doesn't, it doesn't stand out. It's not like I see a lot of movies like, say, Kong Skull Island or something like that, where it's as, as, as impressive as ILM's effects work are, a lot of times it's very obvious that you're watching something that's not really there. And this movie conveys a sense of realism by not having any kind of showy CGI. I mean, the CGI is there when it's necessary, but a lot of it feels like you're watching Mad Max or something. I mean, it's just very pared down and, and satisfying. And also, I mean, look, Hugh Jackman has played this character for 17 years, and he's so convincing that in many ways he salvages some of the kind of stranger plot twists, especially towards the third act. I think it's... Um, it's cool also because it's a franchise that needed some kind of freshening up, and you can feel them working through that in a way that doesn't just feel like a shrug. Like, they got a real filmmaker, they came up with a good premise, and um, people are going to come out really satisfied with it. I'll be That's curious to see. That's an original premise. It doesn't yeah. come from the comic books. The characters come from the comic books, but the, but the screenplay is, is, a, is an original one. Right, in, but in it's effect. not going to alienate the, fa the, the fans. No, no, the they, they stick with the canon to, to a degree. But anyway, that was, that, that, that's going to be huge. And I, I, I'd like to think, I know I'm sounding like Pollyanna for the 50 time, millionth time, I'd like to think that the studios would take notice 
that a movie like this is going to do very, very well at the box office. Well, I'm sure they're taking notice, but it's also hard to imagine. How do you replicate something like that, right? I mean, it's... You, let, you, let, you, you follow the same rules. You, you go back to reasonable scale. You go back to reasonable number of characters. You, you, you know, it, it isn't all about action figure tie-ins. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is sort of a, a no-brainer to people like us who actually care about movies. I just wonder when I see these one-sheets for Power Rangers or whatever it is around the corner, who's, you know, who's going to make that sort of decision that allows the studios to loosen up a little bit and figure out how to create those opportunities for people? Because obviously it makes sense. I mean, I think Black Panther is going to be a very important movie to a lot of people, and it's got a great director behind it, so maybe we'll see more indications of that. And Wonder year. Woman I'm looking forward to, actually. Yeah, skeptical, but believe sure. It, believe it or not. <laughs> Hope um, so. I think Hope Gal Gadot so. is a great Wonder Woman. But anyway, that's... And I saw Before I Fall, which is Rai Russo Young's movie, which was at Sundance, and she's a she's a long-term, you know, Sundance uh, filmmaker who uh, is working in the young adult genre with this and yet it has an edge to it and uh, um, really smart, active, believable, credible women characters so that it doesn't feel like just another high school movie at all um, and I was quite uh, pleased with it and I think that Zoe Deutsch who was so good in Richard Linkletter's Everybody Wants Some um, She's the daughter of Leah Thompson and Howie Deutsch, the director. Um, she's going to go far, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I think Ray Russo Young's super talented, and the idea of a director like that, who, again, has mostly worked on a pretty small scale, working in a more commercial register, slightly more commercial register. Is she has a studio project she might be doing next, so I, I'm crossing my fingers because I actually think she's got the chops to, and the sensibility. A lot of you know what happens with a lot of the women indies who who do who do who do relatively personal work. You know, someone like Karen Kasama told her story very effectively in terms of how difficult it is to make the transition to more generic studio fare. And and what 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 Ryru so Young was able to do in this case was to give it a little more depth than the ordinary person would have and not to just leave it in the in the in in the, the shallow space that it would ordinarily inhabit and and was able to find her way to a better movie and i think that's what women can do and even in the studio realm so, so, so speaking of successful diverse projects uh, Get Out continues to be very successful it's likely to come in number 2 at the box office after Logan and uh I'm just so thrilled to see this really cool, fun movie take off. It's a testament to the strength of the Blumhouse model, to the strength of that film speaking to legitimate anxieties surrounding race in America, but doing them in a way that's also escapist entertainment. And, you know, that's uh, never been really exploited in, in modern times. And so Jordan Peele, who people knew from this comedy duo, is now really a filmmaker. I mean, he's got projects written. He had co-written... What was Keanu. that announcement today? He has, like, a bunch of other horror films. He, he said this to a lot of people, including me in the story that I wrote, that he'd written four other kind of social realist type of horror movies in the vein of Get Out, but not dealing with race. So he's got other demons that he's going to be working through, and I think that's super cool. You know, he's got a voice, and it's also worth noting that this is a guy who, one of the first steps after his show was to co-write this studio movie, Keanu, with um, Keegan-Michael Key, and that, that was a flop. 
So it's a, it's it's nice to see that you know going moving beyond that kind of experience, someone can find a different scale to work on that, that's that's actually much more appropriate. So I'm super excited to see what happens there. I, I saw one early Oscar predictions article that was like, eh, could this be a Best Picture contender? No, I don't think so. But you know, these days anything's possible, as, as uh, we learned on Sunday, and maybe we'll learn again this year. More to come, right? Another few weeks. Absolutely. Now we have to start worrying about next year. <laughs> I was say, another few weeks, and, we, and, and, and we'll have a full list. You know, just wait till can happens, and then it's on. Then, it, then right. it's really happening. Uh, All right, Anne, rest up. We got a whole too. year ahead of us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.